This is the Greg Scheinman Podcast. The Greg Scheinman Podcast. Brought to you by Inns Group Insurance. Inns Group is ensuring success. From the Gal Media Studios, here's Greg Scheinman. Hey, welcome to the Greg Scheinman Podcast. On my show today, we've got Billy Mann. Billy is one of America's most celebrated songwriters and producers, also a successful entrepreneur and philanthropist. Uh, Billy heads up the management firm Mancom, as well as Green and Bloom, a publishing company and a creative company called The Colors You Like. Billy, welcome to the Greg Shaman Podcast. Thanks for being here today. Thank you for having me. Hey, look, I, I really appreciate you doing this, knowing how many how many businesses uh, and, and philanthropic efforts, efforts you're involved in, as well as your, your own family. Um, so I appreciate, first of all, your wife, Jenna, setting this up, uh, who I grew up with. Otherwise, I don't think I'm getting on your calendar <laughs> and your schedule. So let me first say thank you uh, about that. No, it's a, it's a pleasure, man. So, so take, take me through a typical then Bill, Billy Man day. What's, what's your routine? How do you, how do you start your days? What do you do? Well, I'm, a, I'm an early riser, which is um, a, kind of a terrible uh, start for most music people because I'm also a late-night guy, uh, um, but, uh, but I'm an early riser. I, 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 I enjoy the early mornings the best. Um, first off, I have little kids, um, so it's great quality time with them, but it's also uh, I like getting a jump on the day and getting caught up to speed on emails, um, and the news, but actually it's just a good time to not be attached to any technology for a minute and to think of and write down ideas and, um, whether it's work related or creative ideas and to try to just with a clear head approach what the day looks like for me. Um, that's really step one. Um, and then I exercise, I would say four days a week at a minimum so I just think if you can, whatever time people typically wake up, I would probably say try to get up an hour earlier so you can do those things. Um, it's, a, it's a great use of time. Um, and it's also a time to not be constantly reacting. I feel like most people tend to spend a lot of their time reacting to the emails they get or things that they are juggling or calls that they're getting instead of having a moment to be proactive about what they want to do um, before they get started. Yeah, great, great stuff. What do you typically do for, for fitness? What do you like to do? Um, it's funny. I resisted uh, weightlifting for a long time. I found it really boring. Uh, and I was a runner, and uh, I ran the New York Marathon three times, and I'm a really – I'm not a runner. I mean, just sort of physically uh, – I'm more the size of a offensive lineman for an NFL team, uh, so uh, it's not. It's not. I wasn't a. I wasn't an elegant runner. It was like a three-legged rhinoceros type runner. Um, but uh, I, I used to be into running, which is actually great because I travel quite a bit. So you kind of you just bring your sneakers and go. Um, and then as I got older, and as I realized that being a you know a really large guy running for long distances it wasn't very good for my knees and i got into lifting weights which is frankly just a lot better overall for health and um and so that's what i do i I tend to do high interval training and uh and uh weightlifting great so obviously you've been super successful in in the music industry uh, and i definitely want to get into to your career in a number of different ways. But one thing that really jumped out at me in looking in your background was that the pursuit of the, and correct me if I get this, the pursuit of the hit life is more important than the pursuit of the hit song. You know, this really kind of jumped out and and struck a chord with me um, as an entrepreneur uh, in in a number of different businesses and as a father, husband, um, all of that. Explain this to me a little bit and kind of how you came to this realization and, and, and how you live your life? Um, so it's, for me, it's probably the cornerstone of everything is the hit life. Um, for songwriters 
and I think it listen, I think it applies beyond songwriters. I think it applies to people that are um, you know, that go to work at, at any business or anybody that's in finance or uh, real estate or venture capital or um, school teachers or whatever. We're we are our achievements I think that the way that society pushes people is towards big milestone moments. Um, and I have seen a lot of people in the music industry get very, very caught up on those milestone moments being their goals, which in at a first glance is, is understandable. You want to write a number one song or you want to make your first million dollars or um, or you want to get your as soon as I get a house or I get a car or but we really attach ourselves to these locations that are supposed to validate the work that we're doing and a lot of songwriters focus on that moment the hit song moment and for a couple of reasons one because it's a it's a great accomplishment to there's nothing like the rush of hearing something you've written on the radio over and over again. Um, there's a great financial windfall that comes with it, and it's a moment of validation. But that moment of validation doesn't, most of the time, it doesn't really last for very long in the scheme mm-hmm. of a person's full life. And what can happen is when you, well, for starters, when you hit one of those milestones, there is a understandable human arrogance that goes into um, uh, play, which is that's going to last forever and you're just going to keep repeating that. And hopefully, if you're somebody that's lucky enough to have a hit song, that's going to happen. But in all likelihood, and if you look statistically, the chances are it's not. Um, So I've witnessed a lot of people, a lot of really talented people who I love, either spend their lives in pursuit of that hit song moment, um, which I'd say if you're in finance or venture capital or, or in business, it's sort of that big, I built a company, I sold it, whatever that mm-hmm. big transaction is, only to find themselves on the other side of it still not fully fulfilled or looking for a happiness that isn't there. And I just, in years of watching colleagues and friends and other people have moments of success, not just in music, but have that hit song moment, it doesn't ensure a larger, secure platform of happiness. And I realized that not only do I not know how many times I'm going to get that hit song moment, um, I also realized that most people, even if they're lucky enough to have one, they only wind up with one. And I wanted my life to be rich, and I wanted it to be um, quality and defined as a quality life by more than that moment, that location, that time. And instead, look at it more as a direction I want my life to go in, and to have more of a striving for the hit life instead of the hit song. And even though, even just as I'm saying it, there's a kind of Oprah Winfrey-ishness about it, (laughs) I, it's not something that I take lightly. And what I've used as a method to get there is really um, to have a, a list for myself, which I put together many years ago before I had reached a certain level of success that even would make me qualified to, <laughs> to send this back to you on your show, but is to choose directions that I wanted my life to go, to, go towards and then just go in that direction and believe that in the spirit of doing those things well, coupled with my ambition and hopefully some talent, that along the way there could be those milestone hit songish moments, um, but that it would never deter me from the larger life that I wanted. So instead of saying, as soon as I make X amount of dollars, I'll be happy, I, was, I would say I really want a life that's going to be abundance for me, that gives me freedom and financial security, or instead of saying, um, as soon as I, um, as soon as I, I don't know, I took my first trip to Europe, I would have a direction that said, I want to see as much of the world as I can. I want to work with people I love. I want to be passionate about the projects I'm on. 
And mm-hmm. those approaches for me, has pro- it's provided me a much richer uh, life. And it's also, in a way, inoculated me personally from the cacophony of negativity that's around me where people are constantly comparing themselves against other people's achievements or milestones or locations. And instead of saying I'm keeping my eye on the ball, it's like I'm actually keeping my eye on the larger play, the larger experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's a long um, explanation, but that's really what it is, is that we do get hung up on having this, you know, the big moment, the big transaction, the big song. Mm-hmm. And if you go in knowing that the odds of that happening are pretty low in any industry, then you actually could set yourself up for being um, in a position where you feel like you're a failure. And I think that's sure. a totally unfair burden to put on, on yourself, too, as a, you know, as a person trying to achieve. Sure, it's about you're talking, the, the journey, not necessarily the destination. Uh, right. With the- right. I mean, and, and it, but let, let's be clear, though. It doesn't mean that it, it takes away or dulls the sharpness of my ambition or my desire to compete. But what it does do is that it makes me less consumed by the measuring stick that other people are setting, the timeline that other people impose, Instead, I'm just doing things, as long as I can do it and sustain my life and my family, I'm doing it, you know, on the path that I'm meant to be taking as governed by the spirit and ambition of my own direction, not Mm -hmm. measuring against you're supposed to by X date or this is what success looks like is this plaque on your wall or this award or this chart position. Sure. And and there's so much, as we all know, that's out of our control also, you know, the aspects of being able to just let go and let certain things run and take their, take their course. Um, whether it's, it's musically or as you were saying in, in any business, I feel that the, the difference in a way sometimes between success and failure, um, is, is minute, you know, in there, but what you're learning from the successful projects as well as the ones that maybe don't go as well all contributes to to getting towards that that end result or where you want to go without just focusing keeping your eye on the on the proverbial prize but but as you said the the larger bigger picture you know involved that's there no that's right it's like when you're a parent and you say to your kid do you turn to your kid and say i want you to be the best in the class or do you turn to the kid and say i want you to do your best in the class yep Little, little, different, little differences kind of in how you say it, but make maximum impact uh, in, in how you approach a class or, or a business or, or anything you're, you're doing there. And I think you're right. It transcends whatever industry you're in. Um, there's a brass ring, I guess, in all of them that people might be going after. Um, but stop and, and take a look at, at the big picture and how you're going about getting there. Um, right. That's right. I, I and I would add one more layer to this, which is actually being passionate about whatever it is that you're doing. I mean, songwriting and music is, it, it is more glamorous than other businesses on the face value of it in the celebrity culture we live in. But I actually think that step one to the hit life is being passionate about whatever you're doing, whether you're a farmer or a trader or a teacher. I think... That I, I don't think you can have the hit life. I don't think you can have that full, the richness, the, that full experience if you're if you're not passionate about what you do, hours and hours and hours every day, you know, month on month, year on year of your life in the first place. Mm-hmm. A- agree. And as we touched on a little bit, it's not so much what you do, but but how you go about doing it in, in there, uh, mm-hmm. and whatever you're passionate about, and whatever you've chosen to do. Uh, for those those reasons, you're going to work towards getting the most fulfilling uh, fulfilling aspects of it as as you possibly can in there. Yeah. Uh, so when you were heading kind of you're, you're heading in the musical direction, your your career as a musician yourself maybe didn't reach reach the levels you had originally thought they were going to get to with with your own albums and things, but, but then you've taken it to a whole other level as a songwriter and producer and executive. How did that trans? how did you make again that, that transition? It's funny, I, uh, somebody asked me in a recent interview I did for Philadelphia Inquirer about this question, and I said the best thing that ever happened to me was not succeeding as an artist. 
Um, and I would argue, as would anybody who is musical, that you know, being an artist doesn't necessarily mean that you're, you're on the cover of a magazine. You can be an artist behind the scenes. But the idea of being out front and center in that way uh, as a person that you walk into uh, a restaurant or in a public place and everybody turns and looks at you and, you know, you have that spotlight on you all the time had infinitely less appeal to me um, even just in the earlier part of my career. I really, I am so grateful that it didn't work out, but what it gave me was an insight and an education as to how record companies work, how the business works, the amount of work that goes into it, um, what happens when, in the same way somebody is working at some job, but it's not their natural skill, just how powerful it is when you do find your natural ability in addition to your passion for something. And what I had passion for was music and writing and, and, and all of the, every facet of it, um, and more of a passion for that than going out and and wanting to be the center of attention. Uh, so I'd say that was step one was not just recognizing it inside myself, but actually raising my hand and saying, this is not something that I'm going to prioritize right now in my life. I love music and I love writing for other artists. But the experience that I got, and I was very cognizant of building relationships with people um, along the way, it really it helped me. It helped me to be more thoughtful as a songwriter about projects that I might be working for, aware of all of the components that go into breaking an artist, um, and frankly, just the humility of understanding how competitive it is out there and at radio. And um, and it was it was just a healthy transition for me. I was always writing songs for other artists um, somewhere in the back of my mind, but. When I was focused on my artist career, I became precious and territorial about these songs. If someone said, oh, this would be a great song for whatever group, but I'd say, no, that song is for me. And I would be very, <laughs> and that's something that happens with a lot of artists. Um, but I realized that if I believed at the time that the well, the creative well of mine was unlimited, that I was not going to run dry, then I shouldn't be precious about it. And I began to let go and to share songs with other artists and other people. And that really spiraled in a positive direction towards um, an abundance of opportunities writing uh, for other artists. And that eventually, over time, led to me producing um, those artists as well. When you make that transition yourself and you come to that realization that, okay, I'm going to go from the artist direction into the song writing, producing, giving the executive direction, it's one thing for you to come to that kind of, cl have that clarity and say, I'm going to go there. How, how about those that you had surrounded yourself with? Um, were you looked upon differently? Did people around you react differently to, to the direction that, that you were then going? Um, you know, I've never thought about that. I think... Look, on a purely business level, the people that invested in me and my artist career were diehard supporters of my artist career. And they not just investing financially in me, but investing emotionally in, into be, me seeing through that journey. And whether that was the, the then chairman of A&M Records, a guy called Al Cafaro, who I'm still very close with, you know, all the way through to the musicians that I toured with, there was definitely um, a bit of a, okay, what, you know, why is he not going to do this anymore? And some of it could have been, you know, that's how they made their living, uh, not the chairman of the company, but, you know, on some level. And some of it was, um, why is he giving up? He shouldn't give up. You know, it, it can still happen for him kind of thing. But I think that by and large, I never turned to people and said, you know, I'm leaving music and I'm going into, um, you know, widget sales. I just said, I want to pivot my career. I love music. I want to keep doing stuff. You're important to me. But um, it's more important to me to, to have this full music experience. And I also, 
honestly, I wanted a family life. I wanted to, I, I wanted to, I, I, you know, I have my wife, Jenna, as you know. I wanted to, I wanted that fullness, too. And I think that's also another, another trap that, that is set for, for just speaking, you know, from a, a male, a typical male perspective, um, is that, that it's almost like not cool to prioritize aspiring to have a family and a personal life when, in fact, I think it's actually, it, it makes me even more powerful um, as a person and more balanced in the decisions I make every day. But, it, it, you know, it, again, it may not appear as sexy on the box, but in terms of the contents of it, it's, it's infinitely richer, in my opinion. It abs- absolutely could not, could not agree with you more there, and, and certainly one of the reasons we try to go out and talk to people like yourself is, is to put that out there. You know, the, how... How are guys really doing it? You know, how do you balance it, and how do you prioritize? Um, and what is you know, what is cool or not cool? And does that even ma- does that matter perception perception wise? But as you said, what's important? You know, being with your family, making time for that, still being able to have a career. I think a lot of guys, uh, in particular, wrestle with trying to have it all, you know, or trying to do it all, or, right. or what comes, comes first, particularly, and I grew up on the East Coast and now down, down in Houston, very, very different, you know, in, in, both, in both cities um, that, that we see. And I think, look, where, where I want to push it, if I can push it more, is, hey, you know, you can be a lot of different things. You know, you can run multiple businesses. I guess you can, you can write songs and be a tremendous dad and also be a philanthropist. And guys, we can do a lot of things without having to make necessarily a lot of sacrifices in any side uh, in, in there. Well, you, uh, some on. of it, I think, is how we define what all is when you say have it all, when, mm-hmm. when we think about have it all. And I think all in and of itself is, is a, it's a trap that we set for ourselves. Because yeah. all, as measured on the surface, is the you know the family and money and power and status and all these things um and i don't think that and a lot of it is very tied into where people fit in this um a caste system that is in many respects set for us by uh how we ingest everything in the media everything celebrity um and it's it's really it's it's toxic. That trap is toxic. Um, the, again, the hit life for me is really about looking for a deeper sense of what being rich is. Because if being rich is just having money, like I look, I'm of the firm belief that if a person is wildly motivated to make money, they'll make it. They will have the money if they're if they're that focused on money they'll get money they may not get anything else right but they'll get money i mean if a person is that focused on if someone wakes up and they say i'm focused and i want six-pack abs like if you're disciplined you'll get it like Mm -hmm. come hell or high water it may take time but if that's your only focus now you may not be able to speak socially in complete sentences (laughs) with other people by the time you're done but or you may take extremes to achieve that depending on who you are but when you get there it's it it that that doesn't change the fundamental quest towards feeling more complete if you look at somebody who is you know let's say somebody is has gone through a, a struggle with their weight their their whole lives and there's that um the rock you know D- Dwayne Johnson did that yep. that movie and i can't remember the name of it where he plays like a um Oh, like the one a, he did with Kevin Hart. I yeah, think. an yeah. undercover mm-hmm. agent or whatever. And mm-hmm. He's like The Rock. But in the past, he's this, you know, a kid that really struggled with a weight problem, which had extraordinary impacts on him and his self-esteem, even though he he's now looks like The Rock and he's like a human wall with feet. When he looks in the mirror, he still sees that kid. Mm-hmm. who has those challenges, those issues and not just and it's not just about the weight, it's about his whole psyche and i think that it's it's a lot hitting the surface is actually a lot more attainable than trying to get beneath the f- surface and being able to look at yourself in whatever 
in whatever incarnation and feel a sense of completeness. Absolutely. As grounded and logical as this sounds, did this? Where did a lot of this come from for you? I mean, tell me a little bit about about your family life. Uh, I know you've got um, your your own family now with with your wife and kids, but what was your upbringing like? Um. Well, I, my my family life now is a lot more secure and stable than what my upbringing was like. My upbringing was, um, I, you know, I I I, I love both of my parents. My mom passed away at the end of last year. She was awesome. Oh. Um, but I grew up in outside of Philadelphia until I was about eight years old. Our house burned down. My parents got divorced, and we moved into the inner city in Philly. And Philly is a, you know, I always joke with um, with my friends from Philly. It's like it's a great city to be from, but not sure if we would want to live there. Now that said, it's the, Philly's a great place to live, and I, I still have a lot of friends that are down there, but I, all I wanted to do was get out of Philly because it was a very, um, it was, it was a very intense, violent, um, rogue environment. Um, Mm. and for me, at least as a kid, it was like that. I lived, um, really as a, I would say, you know, they say like a latchkey kid. I was more like a free range, a free range kid. Um, and I, Remember, we moved into the city, and within the first week, I got jumped by five kids from my pizza. Um, and I remember my mom's horror and, frankly, her um, denial that we were, like, living in a place that it was super violent. Um, and around 9 o'clock every night where we lived, which was in Center City, in what is a really nice neighborhood now and was decent then, there was nothing but drug dealers and prostitutes come 9 p.m. Um, pretty much every night of the week. So my childhood experience was not just untethered, but it was in an environment where you had to be very street smart, learn how to handle yourself, learn how to handle yourself physically. Um, but the benefit to growing up in, a, in an environment like that is that I was constantly in diversity, cultural diversity, um, economic diversity, the humility of living in that environment. And that, of course, shaped the fact that one day I thought, I'm going to have a family and I'm not going to have my kids in that kind of environment. And now I'm talking to you from um, a, a beautiful view in, you know, with a beautiful lawn and a lake and a forest behind me. Um, and that, to me, in whatever size house that I would live in, it was really that was definitely on my direction list was getting out of the city. But that upbringing for me had a huge impact, both, I think, in retrospect, more positive than negative, but a lot more negative when I was a little kid because you were constantly paranoid, looking over your shoulder, suspect of, you know, what's around every corner and who's a friend, who's a friend of me and who's an enemy. Um, but it's a, it was a spectacular training ground for the music business. <laughs> but but, uh, but that, was, that was really my childhood. When did you, what, what drew you to music, and when did you first decide that music was going to be your career, that was what you were going to be going after? Um, music was, I mean, I was always into music. I, was, I, I always loved it. Um, it was, we had a house there where there was, music. Um, both my parents loved music. Um, both my siblings, I'm the youngest of three, loved music. So there was, music was always playing. Um, but it was really, I was, as the youngest, my sister, um, she sang, and my brother, is, who's a very musical guy, plays, played different instruments. And so to not feel left out initially, I would, if I saw somebody playing an instrument like my brother played multiple instruments and I remember he played the trombone and I thought that was really cool and that's all I wanted to do um, and I started with that but guitar really called out to me first mm-hmm. and um, I remember uh, outside of Philadelphia I went and I got guitar lessons from a guy called Mike Pilla at Medley Music um, and I, I don't know I couldn't have been six years old when I started and, um, and it just caught on 
But I think that the the drug, the musical drug, you know, and why it became my go-to was more uh, an outlet for me, um, just an outlet for me as a person. Um, I, I, I had issues in school, um, fights in school. I was switched school to school to school for a couple of years when I was younger. Um, but music was like a, it was a, it was a neutral, safe friend for me, you know, sitting in my room and playing guitar. Uh, and, you know, Tom Petty, who just passed away, um, that was a big, uh, an influence on me because at the time, um, this is back in the Stone Ages before the internet, but there was terrestrial radio and I, and I had a cassette player that was built into the same unit that was my record player and radio unit. And I would just record songs that I liked on, on WMMR, which was the station. And then I would spend hours in my room rewinding and playing and rewinding again and playing and trying to teach myself Tom Petty records. Um, so, I, you know what? It was. I'm grateful for it because music kept me from being someone... I didn't get into drugs. I didn't get into gangs or any violence like that. I was really... I got focused and, and it was a safe place. Take me through your um, your your songwriting process a little bit, and I'm also particularly interested in in kind of when you write or how you write on your own. But also, you're you're really also known as as a collaborator too with some with some amazing artists. Uh, what what's your process, both on on your own and also when when you do collaborate? It depends on the project. Uh, I mean. I started as a solo artist, and I wrote all my own songs, and as I had mentioned earlier, I was really precious about that. I didn't want to co-write with anybody. The songs for me were from me, for me, and I was really pretty indignant about anybody that would turn to me and say different, which I realized very quickly that that's a, that's a bad approach. Um, it's a bad business approach, it's, but it, it was a bad approach to me, um, for me to, to, to advance. Um, but I think different artists and different genres have required a different approach, and it really depends. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm looking back now over over 25 years of songwriting, and each experience is different. Sometimes you sit down in a room. I mean, Ingrid Michaelson and I sat down um, in, in my guest house studio. Um, we're strumming guitars. We come up with an idea for a song, and it's done just, uh, we have um, a cool riff and a kick drum just thumping along and we're just strumming and singing together and writing down words and going through it and then that song um, this is just something I did this year like that song wound up being recorded by um, an artist called Helena Fisher which by the way no American listener would know but she is one of the biggest stars in Germany Switzerland, Austria and sold a million records in a month, which is like more than, you know, the biggest American stars sell. Um, and the song was converted into a German lyric. So all of a sudden, Ingrid and I had like other collaborators who had to take the lyrics and convert them into German. Um, and that was really from the very traditional, you sit down with some guitars and you sing and write. And then sometimes, you know, I've worked on um, records where people come in and Sometimes um, in working with Pink, sometimes we do it just like that. We sit down. I'm at the piano or guitar, and we'll just—I'll just start noodling around, and then you know you try to turn on the creative faucet, and it just comes out. Um, and then sometimes with her, I'll come in with a track that's basically like a production that is a complete—not—not uh, not always complete, but tends to be the more of a complete structure—and then see if we vibe and try to write what in songwriting is called top-line writing, which is just m lyric and melody over a pre-existing mm -hmm. track, which is very prevalent now in the music industry. Um, and that's another approach. So I think it depends. And genre to genre, it also depends, because a lot of people are um, collaborating remotely. You know, someone works on something, then they send an MP3 to somebody in another country or another city, and then they work on it and send it back. So you mentioned... Uh you just mentioned Pink. Um, ironically, today um, I got an email for, um, about tickets going on sale for the beautiful Trauma Tour coming to Houston uh, yeah. April 28th. Um, you've had a very successful 
successful collaboration with with Pink. Tell me a little bit about about that relationship. Um, it was certainly kind of cool to get the email today, knowing I was going to be talking to you later. Saying, okay, uh, maybe we'll see you here in in April of 2018. But an amazing artist, like truly amazing artist. Yeah, she's she's awesome. I mean, she's from Philly, and and uh, uh, we. I, I mean, I've been working with her since 2003, which is uh, two or three, which is very unusual in the music industry for um, for artists and writers to work for that long together. It's it's. I don't want to say it's unheard of, but it's very rare. So um, she's a cherished friend, first of all, but. Uh, we met initially, I want to say, and this was really from my artist career, um, her management team was aware of my first album, um, which I, my joke was, oh, so you're the one who heard it. <laughs> but um, but, but uh, knew that I was from Philly, and at the time, um, she, had, she had been working with Linda Perry, um, and she was working with Tim Armstrong, and this is on the Try This record, which most of it was done. But they got us together, and it took, like, a few weeks for it to all come together. But when we did, we met in the Valley in L.A. Um, around noon or something, and um, within 20 minutes of sitting down and talking together, we just got on like a house on fire, and, you know, we were, like, ordering whiskey and talking about Philly and... She's just, we've always had that chemistry, and what I'm most proud of as her friend, not just as someone that's been making records with her for a long time, is that she has the hit life. She really, and she worked incredibly hard for it. And what you see and what you hear and what you see her in interviews or on stage, that is who she is. And the authenticity around her is... I think what gets people so revved up and, and enthusiastic and passionate about her career is because she says it like it is. She is who she is. And we just, I don't know, we've been doing it a long time. She's been a great friend to me. Um, she is a great philanthropist. She's a very devoted mother and, and, and wife. Um, and she's, uh, she's just an awesome person. I mean, you hear about this stuff when someone says, oh, someone's so great and blah, blah, blah. It's like anything that you want to know about her, at least, you know, in terms of is there depth there, she's been open about. She's been mm -hmm. open about um, her views on women. She's been open about the challenges in her marriage. She's been open about um, her political views. Um, and that transparency, I think, it, it, she's authentic. So um, in many respects, there's not a lot about her on the you know, on that macro level that you don't already know, except I can just validate it and tell you that she is absolutely 100 fucking percent real. And is that where you, you have to go, that type of transparency, that type of vulnerability, that willingness to be open for, for yourself as well, for, for this process also really, really to work? Um, you know, think about even what questions do I want to ask? What questions do I feel like I would be holding back on? How do you get to the place where okay, you're comfortable enough with just opening it all up and putting it all, all out there. I think that, that makes such a huge difference because I could hear it in your voice, and it's so touching and emotional to get to that space of, of a relationship. Well, I mean, I would say any healthy relationship is going to have that kind of transparency. You want a great marriage. You want a great business partnership. You want great friends. If you're faking any of it, then you're never going to know that it's how real it is or how real it can be or how not real it is. And I, I think people, I, it's, listen, it's scary for anybody to be transparent. I mean, anybody who's listening to your show uh, certainly struggles with the three tiers of their lives, which is their, you know, the, your, um, your outward persona, your public life, and then you have your personal life, and then you have your secret life. And I think nine times out of ten, that's how people function. Just like the person that's out at parties, hey, how's it going, or at work, and then their personal life, and then their secret life. I think to, to be able to accomplish a, a through line, and that for, for real consistency through that, those three levels, um, it doesn't mean that you have to tell your secret life to someone that you just met, but it means that I think that the 
the level of um, integrity is commensurate with the level of intimacy with the people that you engage with. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Abs- absolutely. So you you mentor a lot of musicians, producers, songwriters. Uh, who are also some of some of your mentors? Oh gosh, I mean, I think, um, I mean, for starters, I would say to someone who doesn't have a mentor, um, reading a lot of books is really helpful. Um, I found so much wisdom in in being uh, an, a, a, a voracious reader. Um, if I can't read, I get audiobooks um, for when I'm exercising or driving or traveling. What do you read um, now, if I can ask? Um, I just read uh, David Asprey's book um, on Bulletproof, the Bulletproof oh, Diet. Oh, yeah, bullet, the Bulletproof. Yep. Uh, He's terrific. I, I start my day with a Bulletproof coffee. Well, yeah. you and me both. <laughs> yes. You and me both. Mm-hmm. So I, I just finished his book, um, and I just got Headstrong, his other book. I'm going to read that, too. Mm-hmm. Um but, I, you know, I would say for mentors for me, um, there's a guy in the music business named David Simone, um, who uh, I've known for a long time in my career. Um, he's a manager. He was the he ran Polygram um, Publishing. He uh, he's worked with, I don't know, over the years. I mean, the list is so long. He and his partner, Winston. Um, he is someone who, I mean, we are friends and we've become very dear friends. And this year recently I officiated the wedding of his son, Benjamin, who's also my agent at William Morris, actually. <laughs> but, um, but David and Benjamin, who I've known since he was, I guess, a teenager. But at the earliest stages of my career, when I was coming up as a songwriter, David was super supportive. And through every... L- every pivot in my career from songwriting to producing to managing to selling my company to running uh, EMI's international music, um, he, he never looked at me with the kind of, with any schadenfreude. He never rooted against me. There was never any salt. Um, it was just somebody that was secure enough that he supported and said, good for you, give him hell. Um, and we've stayed friends, and he's somebody that I that I can go to and say, "Hey, I'm in this situation, and what do you think?" And he's he's definitely one of them. There was a a night in in 2010 that I had I'd read about also in, in in doing a little research for this. Um, where was the Grammys? And Pink had performed was performing "Glitter in the Air" um, mm-hmm. in there, and you had talked about this being being one of the best one of the best nights, a career highlight for you. Um, what have been, you know, that as well as maybe some other, some, some of your biggest career highlights, standout moments? Um, I mean, I know this is going to sound unbelievable, um, but today, today is a career highlight. I get to wake up in the morning and do what I love to do passionately every day and to feed my family, my, you know, my wife, my kids, and myself, and to have abundance. I know it sounds corny, but I actually, I, I feel like every day I get to do it is a highlight day for me. I don't say that to minimize those big moments, like that one night was particularly uh, meaningful. But I, when I look through in the aggregate, it's the ability to continue, and this is like a quote that Grover Washington Jr. said to me when I was a teenager, and he sat me down and said, I'm going to tell you the secret of success in the music business. And I was, you know, really excited to hear about all the glamorous shit that was ahead of me. You know, like, I mean, when you're a teenager and you're a teenage boy, you know, you, all you think about is like girls and, you know, money and um, just real surface stuff. And he said to me, success is the ability to continue. And I didn't, I remember being like, oh, you know, that's not really, it's like not super exciting. But I remember there was a moment where I got it. And I think that that's, that the highlight is a constantly everyday blood flowing experience is that I get to continue to do this for decades is that is the only highlight I need. 
in, when I really look at it. Do you have a particular favorite song that, that you've been a part of, or, or is that also kind of like asking you what, who your favorite child is? You know, you know. No, I mean, don't get me wrong. Look, I, just, I mean, I, after I just told you about, yeah. there are definitely like highlights and mm-hmm. songs that really are moving to me. Some of them are the ones that help me get out of just, you know, just elevate my career to the next level. Um, but I would say, you know, one of the projects that I have, that really moved the needle for me was actually a record I did with Art Garfunkel mm-hmm. um, in 2001. And, well, for starters, I'm like, a, I'm a total music file. So, like, I'm, you know, I've worked with Carol King. I've worked with, uh, and I'm close with Carly Simon. I, and I'm working with Art Garfunkel. I work with Hall & Oates and working with, like, they're my heroes. And to work with, or with Sting, like, those are the legends of my life. And a lot of today's artists and, and songwriters and producers, they really, that's like a, it's like a foreign world to them. And to me, I was so lucky that I was old enough and, they, and those artists were young enough that I was able to um, bridge generations in terms of my musical experience. And Art's manager at the time uh, is a guy called John Cher, who's a really great, super passionate promoter um, and manager. And um, he reached out to me and said, you know, Artie's writes poetry and he's, you know, he's very, I mean, he's intellectually brilliant and he, he also clearly marches to his own thing what could you do with his poems? What could you do? And I remember meeting Artie and walking um, into his place off of Central Park, and it was literally like, you know, um, this is one of the great voices of, of, of the 20th century. Mm. Um, and um, and cap- really being the captain of that project, which is... Um, I wanted to take myself out of the role of being the songwriter and really focus on how do I create something around Artie that would be interesting, elevate him, meaningful and relevant, but still honor the history of his whole career with Paul Simon. And (laughs) both strategically to preserve my own place in the world, I wasn't going to become like, I'm the songwriter muse with Artie for Artie's voice because no one will ever be able to unseat Paul Simon, ever. Um, so I took myself out, and I actually um, reached out to two songwriters, singer-songwriters, who are really wonderful. Uh, Buddy Monlock, who uh, is a brilliant guy, um, and Maya Sharp, an amazing woman, both incredible musicians. And I had this concept of this trio project, and we made a record called Everything Waits to be Noticed. And the first day of actual tracking in Nashville was 9-11. And it was, it got huge critical acclaim, the record. It it was never a big seller, and I wrote a bunch of songs on the record, but Artie wrote um, a good chunk of the record, and it really, that whole project and the the time that it took and the years it took to do it, and I got to work with uh, just really exceptional people, I mean, if you're a nerdy musician person like me, then you would, you know, like George Massenberg mixed the record. He's like, the, he is literally the founder of Parametric EQ in, in recording. Um, it was just, it was a very, it was, a, it was a very meaningful project. And Art actually has gone on to become a very dear friend, sang at my wedding. Um, just, I, I don't know, something about that project was very much a turning point for me because it wasn't, it wasn't just me, oh, I'm a songwriter. It was me as a producer, an executive producer, as a, you know, basically m- mentoring someone who is a legend and having to trust my own instincts enough to, to say, you know, just go for it. And, and it, it was a, it's a beautiful project. I, I'd say to anybody that likes Simon and Garfunkel era music, it's, the album's called Everything Waits to Be Noticed. Can we touch a little bit, and you have a, a beautiful family, which we started talking about a little bit at, at the beginning, and I've seen pictures of, of your son playing music, and, and you have four. Um, you also, your, your oldest um, has autism. Right? Yeah. Talk to me a little bit about um, 
your your involvement with with philanthropy and being on the board of Autism Speaks, the ex, the experience um, there that you and your family um, go through, and and your your obviously your passion for your family, which is which is radiant and comes across uh, in everything you say. Talk talk a little bit about that. Um. Well, I. This, I mean, first of all, there's, you know, there's three things that come to mind when I think about it. One is my wife, um, and I got very lucky. Um, I, uh, when I was in my early 20s, I fell in love with a girl um, named Rima Hort, who, uh, you know, it's, I was really young to fall in love with, uh, uh, with a girl, um, but I really fell in love with her, and, um, and she and I got engaged and she um, was diagnosed with stomach cancer really young. And um, we got married, and she died nine months after that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it was, uh, needless to say, a really humbling experience, not something that I could have expected. I was about 25 at the moment, and at that moment, and I was, I had thought I had, like, had the world um, by the balls. I mean, in many respects, this is sort of the... Um, harsh indoctrinization into the hit life process for me because Mm -hmm. everything, every milestone that I had thought would bring me happiness basically just crumbled around me. You know, I wanted to fall in love and I wanted to get a record deal and I wanted to, my artist thing, and basically it all just sort of fell away. So the, the harsh reality of that was very difficult for me um, and you start thinking things, especially when you're a young person and it's like you're going 150 miles an hour, um, when all of a sudden there's like a wall that drops in front of you and you crash into it, the recovery is really tough. Mm-hmm. And when I met my wife, Jenna, um, Jenna actually knew Rima, who I, who my wife that had passed away, um, not well, but her sister was actually, Jenna's older sister was actually at my wedding to Rima those, those years ago. And, um, and Jenna and I met not under the, you know, any sort of fix-up, um, but we just met. I needed photos for something. She was the photo editor of Elle magazine. Um, I was traveling a lot, and when I met Jenna, it was, I just met, I just liked her. You know, it wasn't, and that whole, the whole, like, meet someone and see fireworks experience that I had experienced before, not only did I, would I not look for it, but I, I, I was, it, it wouldn't be something that I would run to anyway because I, I didn't have the emotional capacity to do it. Mm-hmm. And Jen and I dated for years before, and she'll tell anybody who will listen that it's like years, because her friends and family were basically tapping their feet like, really, you're going to waste your time with this, you know, broken musician guy? <laughs> um, but, uh, but she was home for me, and I think the amount of time it took for our relationship to marinate in part is why we are such a great family and why she and I are such a great team in facing autism with my son and also just having a lot of kids and, and living a pretty amazing but very full life experience and when we did get married years later the wedding was fantastic i sort of mentioned that artie was already sang at the wedding Mm. but it was really for me uh, you know i talk about life highlights it was really a highlight for me because it was a taking back of happiness for myself and and my future and i really i got I, i really married like an amazing woman and that is luck. I mean, I'll tell you now, to anybody listening to this, it's like people can say, what's the secret to marriage? A big chunk of it, get lucky. Um, choose wisely, take your time, meet the in-laws before you marry the person and get lucky. <laughs> Absolutely. I definitely uh, uh, I agree with that and, 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 got, and got lucky. And I thank you for, for sharing that. I think that you know, the, those moments, um, you know, as I listen to you tell it, and, you know, I lost... For me, I lost my father to cancer when I was 17, mm. uh, graduating high school, heading, getting ready to head away to college. Um, 
and Zimori at the time kind of was running, you know, a thousand miles an hour. Everything was going fantastic, and 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 it stopped. You know, it changed it changed everything. Um, yeah, in, yeah, in there. it does. I mean, I think you know, just to get back to your question, um, when my son Jasper was diagnosed with autism, and this is he's fifteen now, so this is twelve and a half years ago. Um, there wasn't as much known. It wasn't as uh, there wasn't the awareness level that there is now, um, and it was you know it was very uh, for any parent that has a child that faces not just autism but any sort of uh, disability um, and walks down that unknown path. It is it's 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 terrifying. It's a super scary experience and. Um, and it was, but uh, it was a humbling experience, and it took me time to figure out myself in it as a man and, and as a dad. It wasn't like, oh, my son has autism, and now I'm going to become a philanthropist and go to the White House. It was like, <laughs> I didn't want anything to do with, uh, with anything other than trying to help be supportive of him um, and be there for, for Jenna. And then... Um, and actually, I actually got a call from someone who I'd been working with on a project at the time who said, you know, don't tell anybody that your kid has autism because, you know, you could, you know, people may not hire you and you're like on a roll, so you may want to like not mention it. And separate from that's like a horrible thing to say to somebody mm-hmm. um, during a vulnerable moment. Uh, it definitely scared me and because um, it's my livelihood and now I have the responsibility of, um, extra uh, services for my kid. Um, but that really took, it, it took us on a, a, it's an unexpected path um, for us. And even for my daughters and my, my sons, you know, my kids are born into a, 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 an, an uncharted path to love, um, either because their sibling has um, a disability that they need to learn to navigate um, or because um, we've got a lot of kids. We have four kids now. <laughs> but um, I think what autism did for me in a positive sense is that it provided a filter for bullshit. It provided um, a very clear, fast ability sniff out when something was important and when something wasn't important. And it's not that I needed that because, I, as I just shared with you, I mean, I, I went through what really was just like a horrific loss um, already. But what this did is that it was a constant filter that made, frankly, decision-making easier for me, um, what I'm going to prioritize, who I'm going to prioritize. That all really came into focus quickly. Um, and then... Eventually, I met Suzanne and Bob Wright, who founded Autism Speaks, mm-hmm. and, um, and they knew I was sheepish about getting more involved, but at the same time, I was having a lot of traction writing successful songs and making records for a lot of successful artists. I think they saw the opportunity in someone that could be, uh, you know, um, at a higher altitude to get attention to Autism Speaks and to mm-hmm. Autism as an Issue. And for me, it became a really uh, a cathartic process and, and a, a kind of therapy to stay humble and remember that this isn't just happening to me and my family, which, frankly, we're privileged enough to be able to um, to provide a lot of the services for my son from just in a way that 90% or more families in America or around the world don't either don't have access to the services or don't have the resources uh, financially or otherwise to, to, to access them. And... That really inspired me to do something and get more involved, and that threw me into the political arena and relationships with um, political leaders, and and it it, um, it it was a way for me to channel the experience that we had at home in a way, hopefully, to shine a light on on, on autism for all different kinds of families. Great. Bill, is there 
a question or something that you wish, you know, in all the interviews you do and people you talk to, is there something you wish someone would ask you that you, you never get asked and you wonder, well, why doesn't anybody ever ask me that? You know? Um, I, I don't know. I, I, you know, I think that the question that I hope that people think about when they listen to an interview or when they talk to people is really, is this person happy? Are they are they happy? Are they speaking from a place that uh, like a uh, um, a place of contentment, which shouldn't be confused with you know complacency or mm-hmm. laziness, but really how how credible is what they are saying to the people listening? And uh, for me, it's not that I've ever been asked that question, but I always think to myself when I listen to interviews, does someone say ask? directly are you happy and what is that answer yep it's it's great and and now i really appreciate you saying that one of the reasons i do this and enjoy doing this so much as as a passion is getting to talk to a wide variety of of really interesting and diverse individuals about just that what i'm what i'm interested in is are are you happy? Like you know, how do you become happy? What are people looking for? You know, in there, in the in the balance of it all, um, and happiness trumps trumps all of it. Um, mm. I think. I no, want- I think. Listen, you. I think you're. I mean, obviously, I agree with you. Um, and we all, every person out there, faces pushback. I mean, if you're living and actually doing something, and you're creating or you're putting yourself out there. It's like I always say to songwriters and artists, there's only two steps to, to music. Step one, create. Step two, be judged. <laughs> it's, it's harsh. Mm-hmm. You, you know, songwriters and producers, artists, they can spend, an artist can paint on a canvas for three weeks, and then they can show it to someone, and they can shrug their shoulders and go, that's eh, okay. <laughs> it's, like, it's like being judged is um, certainly the toughest side for everybody. And by the way, we live in this media world where the jury all has a, 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 a microphone on Facebook or Twitter or mm-hmm. social media, and they can say whatever they want. Um, they can say so-and-so is a fraud, or he stole that art from so-and-so, or that person's a bad person, or so-and-so is a crook. Or They can say it and they with impunity in many cases. Um, and that is a new element to all of this, is that this new um, social media judgment. And I think that um, it's also, it, it, listen, it it's permeates every element of our lives now. Um, whatever side somebody is politically, um, the President of the United States is communicating, for better or worse, in my view, for worse, <laughs> on sensitive policy issues. Uh, with a limited number of characters, right? Uh, that is a that that's I think that's scary to anybody. It would be like trying to encapsulate something from the Bible in fewer characters than was expressed by whatever God you believe in. Mm. It's just it's it, you know. So I think that part of being happy, part of being um, a grown up, being a man, being happy in your own skin, is accepting. The fact that somebody out there isn't going to agree, they're not going to like it, they're going to think that you're not great, and whether you're an artist or you work at a company, they're going to do it. They can be anonymous, they can be on Yelp, they can be, they can be at a party, but knowing yourself and being comfortable in your own skin, honestly, you want to know the best thing about autism for, for me mm-hmm. is knowing that my child with autism doesn't think about the acceptance or envy or jealousy, those facets of uh, those more toxic um, um, life experience mm-hmm. uh, um, additives are not anywhere in his being. And the freedom that he has in that, with a lot of other challenges that go with it, but the freedom he has in that process, I, I think, is... I envy. I really do. We go out to a restaurant, and he makes noises, and people stare and say, control your kid, or they, whatever. It's like, 
I care about that, but he doesn't. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe he does. I shouldn't say that. It's very possible that he, he may care, but he can't care because it's who he is. Right. Billy, man, really, really amazing stuff. I truly am grateful and appreciative of all of your time today. Um, I could listen to you for hours longer <laughs> and, and do two, three, four parts on this because it is really, um, it's really moving stuff, great stuff, and, and super, super deep. So thank you so much for giving me your time. Uh, thank Jennifer for connecting us to put this all together. And best with everything to your family and your career. And thank you, and thank you my, my friend, for doing this. I really appreciate it. No, it's a pleasure. And if, for your listeners, they can find me on Twitter, at Billy Mann, um, two ends. Um, and uh, they can check out the Hit Life. There's a Facebook page, and I need to refresh it. But, um, and there's a speech that I uh, gave years ago for CSAC, which is a songwriter's organization called the Hit Life. Um, and it's you know it was it's a lot in the in the themes that we're talking about. But um, congratulations on everything you're doing, and thanks for having me on the show. Thank you, guys. Billy Man, the Hit Life. Everybody, check it out. Billy Man, thank you again. The Greg Scheinman Podcast was presented by Ends Group Insurance. Ends Group is ensuring success. For more information, visit endsgroup.net.